0: And thanks for listening.
1: Hey, climate conscious listeners, this is Greg Dalton. You're listening to the C1 Review, a podcast presenting highlights from some of our past shows. You can check out videos, podcasts and more at climateone.org. This is
2: Climate One, a conversation about powering America's future. As continuing drought stresses California's water resources, everyone's fighting for their fair share. Cities and environmentalists blame each other. They both blame the
3: farmer. Many people do not understand what it takes to grow food. I don't care what you eat, there is water, a lot of water in that food. How can we
2: provide enough for everyone?
4: There really is no more new water, but there are new supply options and water reuse, and recycling is one of them. Better stormwater capture is another. And the truth is we spend a lot of money collecting wastewater, treating it to a very high standard, typically, and throwing it away. Sweet, pure water. Good to the last drop. Up next on
2: Climate One. Is changing the conversation about America's energy, economy and environment. I'm Claire Schoen. These Climate One Conversations, hosted by Greg Dalton, were recorded before a live audience at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan public forum in San Francisco. last winter's rains, Californians breathed a collective sigh of relief, but even in the wetter northern part of the state, it just wasn't enough water to make an impact. Short-term weather is not the same as long-term climate, and state water watchers understand that this rainfall did not break the worst drought in over a thousand years. With the effects of climate change being felt around the country, droughts in some areas and flooding in others, the nation is looking to California as a model for how to handle a new normal. Today, we'll dig into the water woes of this bellwether state. How is California planning for a hotter, drier climate in the cities and down on the farm? Almonds, for instance, are often villainized as water guzzlers, but it turns out that drop for drop, they are much better than beef. To untangle this complex issue, Greg talked to four water experts back in April, just as we were coming out of what is traditionally California's rainy season. Gabriel Ludwig is Director of Sustainability and Environmental Affairs at the Almond Board of California. Buzz Thompson is Director of the Woods Institute for the Environment at Stanford University. Ashley Boren is Executive Director of Sustainable Conservation, an environmental group that works with farmers. And Max Gomberg is the climate and conservation manager at the State Water Resources Control Board. Here's Greg Dalton talking about a thirsty future.
1: Buzz Thompson, is the drought over? Paint the big picture for us statewide in
5: California. So the drought is clearly not over. And The drought that we've seen so far was not just an ordinary drought. It was one of the worst droughts that we have seen, just in terms of the total deficit of precipitation. It is the worst drought in a century. And if you include the heat that was involved, then it could be the worst that we've seen in a millennium.
1: Let's talk about almonds, Gabrielle Ludwig. How are the almonds faring now at this point in the water season?
3: We don't think that the drought is over and whether it's the weather drought or regulatory-caused reasons for drought. Regulators can cause drought? From our perspective, yes. So
1: they're, they're holding it back to, to, what, protect fish?
3: It can be for fish, it can be for temperature, it can be for salt. I mean, there's a whole variety of reasons. Max Gumber, did you cause this crisis? <laughs> I didn't say cause the crisis. have <laughs> a component to it. No, uh,
6: <laughs> but... We have to protect our ecosystems. We have to protect our urban areas and make sure that we have supplies for cities. And we have to make sure that we still have a thriving agricultural economy. It's a very difficult balancing act.
4: In fact,
1: California, I think, has uh, in law equal rights for ecosystems and human uses. So Gabrielle Ludwig, do you think that that's reasonable and fair, or do you think it's, it's tilted in one direction or the other?
3: I don't think it's that simple because we're all dependent on all of it. We all need the water, whether we eat the food, we're all dependent on the ecosystems. So how do we go from where we are now to the future if we view it as here are the environmental rights, here are the ag rights, here are the urban rights? We're all in this together, and we are all codependent. So how do we move forward from where the conversation's been to a more productive conversation?
1: Do you think that almonds have been unfairly villainized?
3: Of course I do. <laughs> but I would also say that it, it, it's... Part of the larger conversation that many people do not understand what it takes to grow food, I don't care what you eat, there is water, a lot of water in that food. Almonds took the hit because we're now one of the largest crops in the country. And if you actually look at the data, the absolute amount of water going to agriculture hasn't changed that much over the last 20 years. But the productivity, the amount of crop we grow with that water has really increased. So everything's evolving.
5: Brother Thompson, I'd like to get your response to that. First of all, I think it is a time-honored tradition in the water field to vilify everybody else. If you are an urban area generally, then it's frequently the fault of the farmers. If you are a farmer, it's the fault of those environmentalists. And we really should be thinking about how can we meet all of the various needs in the, uh, uh, in the state. One of the things that we have learned from this particular drought is actually the fish are not doing particularly well, despite our efforts for them. We do short them whenever we can, and what happens is that we sort of push things so far that they end up being put on the endangered or threatened species list. At that point, a variety of regulations click into place, which makes our life harder for people like Gabrielle, who need to be growing the food.
7: Ashley
1: Bourne, why do fish matter? What's really being protected there? Why do I care if uh, some stream is preserved?
7: Well, people do eat fish, so there's (laughs) there's certainly that aspect of it, but they're also, I think, important indicator species for some of our rivers and streams and ecosystems and floodplains. And so if your fish aren't doing well, it's usually a sign that other parts of the ecosystem aren't doing well also. And in addition, there's lots of species that are dependent on those fish. So if you take that fish out of the system, you have a cascading effect on on other species.
1: Ashley Boren, should the Endangered Species Act be loosened as a partial response
7: to the drought? That's a very tough question. (laughs) (laughs) I think uh, the Endangered Species Act has played a really important role in helping us protect the environment for species. I think there is probably room to tweak it and to have uh, an ecosystem focus and not just on single individual species, but it's certainly a very important law that needs to stay.
1: Max Gomberg, what's the State Water Board's position on whether the... Endangered Species Act is in the way, or it should be protected as it is?
6: The state's position is you don't go undoing federal legislation that's (laughs) been around for decades and is is important to preserving our environmental values. California's economy is heavily based on tourism right? and our natural environment that we all enjoy, people who live here and people who come visit. We're not going to have the same natural environment unless we protect it, as well as Again, balancing our urban needs and our agricultural
1: needs. Max Gumberg, Governor Brown announced some historic water restrictions in California, 25%. How did we do? We did very well. We hit almost 24%,
6: 239 to be exact. And that really shows tremendous, tremendous resilience by the people of California because you're talking about over 38 million people All doing their part, whether it was taking a shorter shower, turning off the irrigation, whether it was businesses making changes to make their water use more efficient, from beer production to data centers in Silicon Valley. You know, 25% was a really ambitious goal. That's one out of every four drops of water that was being used, no longer being used.
1: And do farmers get some credit for that achievement as well? Most of the water use in the state is in ag. Did farmers, you know, do they share in that success?
6: They do. It's more complicated than it is in the urban sector for agriculture, because you've got surface water that's governed by a complex water rights system. Then you've got groundwater. Some farmers have had to do more than
1: others because of where they fit in the hierarchy. Gabrielle Ludwig, how was that 25%? What did that impact on the farmers that you know, whether almonds or otherwise?
3: A number of farmers had already 100% cuts before the governor put in the 25% cut. So you had some growers with zero water, Allocation. Other growers still with their full allocations. And where growers could, they used groundwater, no doubt about it. So groundwater supply got tapped very heavily because of the drought.
1: Buzz Thompson, tell us about the groundwater situation and how we're kind of drawing from that savings account that water people always talk about.
5: We've been overdrafting some of our most important groundwater aquifers in the state now for years. And that's a real problem when we get to a drought, because in a drought, if you're cut off from your surface water supplies, then that groundwater is that savings account that you can draw from. In 2014, the state for the first time adopted a comprehensive groundwater management act, which is now going to require all local jurisdictions to adopt sustainable groundwater management plans. It's an exceptionally well-drafted and good law. But having said that, it still could allow us for years, in fact, for decades, to continue to draw down on our groundwater. And so in a state which is inherently dry and where we know droughts are going to get worse and worse in the future, what is the limit to our water use? And at what point do we need to say we have to learn to live with the water which is sustainably drawn.
1: Max Gomberg, the entire water system in the West was set up during an unusually historically wet period. There's more water on paper than there is in reality. Are we facing an inevitable sort of shrinkage or belt tightening here?
6: We're already seeing it. You know, this is one of those areas where we look at what's happening with climate change. Our temperatures are getting warmer. Our snowpack is receding. The Colorado River is in long-term drought. That's water for eight different states in the West, and the water doesn't even get to Mexico. That's a serious problem that's long-term and needs to be addressed. That's true for the Sierra Nevadas as well. We're losing that snowpack. It's only going to be snow at higher elevations as temperatures warm. The evidence is already in that we're going to more extremes. When we do have warm and dry periods, they're going to be even more warm and dry than they were in the past. So we're going to have longer and more severe droughts. These are really pressing challenges, plus we have population growth to deal with.
1: Gabrielle Ludwig?
3: To me, it's about diversifying the water supply. So part of the issue is that we've relied on surface water, which meant relying on snowpack storage and the gradual runoff dams, or groundwater, we don't really have much in between. What we're looking at is, can we improve the irrigation? Can we bring new technology to bear on the irrigation to make it even more efficient than it currently is? How do we invest into recycling, groundwater recharge, you know, efforts to take water from the cities that has not already been allocated, and say, can we use that tertiary clean water and get it to where it can be used for irrigation? Where are we on, you know, using solar for some kind of desalinization? So it's not one big project, but can we find ways to diversify and figure out how to adapt to all these changes. That's really the conversation we need to be having. And I think, yes, there's going to be limits, but I also think there's a lot of potential that we haven't tapped into.
7: Ashley Bourne? It's also really thinking about the system in a much more integrated way. You know, we tend to think about surface water, we think about groundwater as separate sources, and they're obviously very connected. Tell us about Don
1: Cameron, who's a farmer that has something that may be a solution for for doing what we're talking about.
7: Don Cameron is a very innovative farmer in Fresno County who is entirely reliant on groundwater, and he is in an area of very severe groundwater overdraft. But there are flood events, and he said, you know, why don't I just let this water come on my land and you know and recharge the groundwater? So in 2011, which was our last high-water year, he let the Kings River flow over onto his pistachio and his grape acreage, about 3,000 acres, It was, you know, 18 inches high for weeks at a time. So, you know, not just flood irrigating, but kind of uber-flood irrigating. Mm -hmm. And all of his neighbors would look at him and just say, this you know, this guy is insane. (laughs) You know, he's going to kill his crops. But he was able to recharge a tremendous amount of groundwater, and he had no impact on his crop yields. And there's a lot of potential for that concept, because there's a lot of land in the Central Valley that is permeable. So... It's not going to solve the problem. You know, we definitely need to reduce pumping to get our groundwater to sustainable levels, but it could be a really important piece of the puzzle. Some of our studies show that in some basins it could make up to one-third of the average annual overdraft with existing infrastructure, so it's, it's significant. We're talking about
2: water and climate change at Climate One. Greg Dalton will continue his conversation in just a moment. We're picking up the conversation now about how California is handling the drought with Gabriel Ludwig from the Almond Board of California, Buzz Thompson from the Woods Institute for the Environment at Stanford University, Ashley Boren from Sustainable Conservation, and Max Gomberg at the State Water Resources Control Board. Here's our host, Greg Dalton. Let's
1: talk about dams. They're a big part of the issue. Gabrielle Ludwig, do you think that we need more concrete, raise some dams, more storage to capture water for times that it's needed?
3: Short answer is yes, but I consider that as part of this whole conversation about how do we deal with a changing way of water supply. So if we're getting more rainfall in the winter and less snowpack, is increasing dams, especially the ones that we have already, part of the conversation we need to have?
1: Raise Shasta Dam.
3: Could be an option, but I would not say that's the only solution.
1: Max Gomberg, there's a trend in some places to tear down dams in Washington and perhaps soon here with the Klamath.
3: Those Klamath dams
1: are coming
6: down, by the way. So that that we see is a really positive step. We had one in Carmel Valley that just came down. We have over 1,400 major dams in California. We've dammed every river at least once, except one, some multiple times. More dams overall is not the answer. When we do have wet years and a lot of flow, we need to be able to store that water as much as possible. And we do have distributed reservoirs around the state to do that. We also need to get more of it in the ground. But more dams is not going to solve our fundamental problems
5: with water supply in the state. As Thompson, more storage, more dams seems logical. We have to use the dams that we already have more smartly than we are right now. At the moment, we are frequently having to release water from dams in order to ensure that they have flood control space, and given the additional climate and weather information that we have now, we could tweak that system in order to do a much better job of actually saving water for use. Gabriel Ludwig,
1: do you see water prices increasing in the future, and what's that going to do to farmers?
3: Fundamentally, yes, I think water prices are going to come up because... We still need to invest in infrastructure. So for groundwater recharge, you need to invest in certain infrastructure just to make that possible. We need to invest in the water distribution systems for irrigation. So those are costs that someone's going to have to bear. And we have somewhere between 350 to 450 different crops that are grown in this state. So one consequence of increased water costs is we're going to lose some of that diversity because basically that's going to force growers to grow the crops. that are going to give them the return on the investment. More almonds. It could well mean more tree nut crops. But basically that whole agroecosystem has complexities into it that water costs would change.
6: Max Gomberg. I want to talk about another aspect of, of, of pricing, if I may, which is pricing in human rights. We passed a law four years ago, the Human Right to Water Law in California. We have over 1.5 million people in this state who don't have access to safe and affordable drinking water. We have a huge challenge there. And part of it is that systems are run with contaminants. There's not enough financing to operate the systems effectively. We have to come up with a way to pay for
5: that. Both Thompson. At the price at which we charge people for water, we are basically starving the water sector of any type of innovation. So what I would urge is, is that we have a public goods charge on water. That public goods charge should deal with the equity issue. It should deal with the data issue. It also should help to promote new technologies in the water field.
1: Gabrielle Ludwig, when you talk to your members about climate, do they resonate with climate or do they say, well, the weather's been changing my whole life, my dad did this, you know, is that a concept that resonates with them? And the fact that things may be fundamentally changing in a way that their ancestors didn't
3: I would say that in general, climate, at least the way it's generally talked about, does not resonate with most of agriculture because you're in a business where you're dependent on the weather. So for them, variability each year is already part of the nature of their business. But I would say that certainly the lack of a snowpack last year was a wake-up call. A lot of tree crops need a certain amount of chilling hours. If they don't get it, you don't get that much yield. So there's a number of things that are happening where I do think there are some questions starting to be raised. But if you talk about increased changes, you know, the extremes and weather, that resonates with them.
1: Buzz Thompson, we're talking about a new normal here. I'd like to hear your thoughts on how, you know, the broader sweep about how we're entering a new normal and how we've kind of just been lulled into this place of this, this wetness that we've had for the last hundred years or so and how it's hard for the human mind to catch up with the new, the new normal.
5: Yeah. So, I mean, we clearly are moving into a totally new situation where the type of weather patterns that we have historically seen are not going to be the norm in the future. And we're going to have to be able to deal with that. I actually think that the public is getting the concept of climate change, and largely because of what's happening in the water field. It is an impact of climate change that we are seeing today. And so I actually think this is one of the sectors that's actually taking this problem seriously.
1: There was a poll from the Hoover Institution at Stanford that showed that water was more convincing to reach people that climate is happening than melting ice and high temperatures. Water was a more salient
5: issue for people than anything else. One of the interesting things is that in the water context, we are already seeing climate change, right? This is not something that's going to happen 20 years from now or 50 years from now. This is something that's already been happening for the last three to five decades. Let's
2: go
1: to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One.
2: There must be uh, some way that we can produce or transport water, especially because the East really have a lot of water. I mean, water and floods and all that. There must be some way that... uh, And I think that they're already getting water from the clouds or something. What do they call it? Seedling? Cloud Cloud seeding. Right. So... That's what I'm thinking, something where technology can transport or make water and <laughs> get it from somewhere.
1: Thank you. Gabrielle Ludwig?
3: We all fantasize, you know, transporting a Icebergs. iceberg down here. <laughs> so just realize water is very heavy. And so how do we move it? So that's really the the magic you would have to figure out is how do we solve that conundrum?
5: Buzz Thompson? Yeah, so if you're looking for technological innovations, I would not start with cloud seeding. The amount of water that you're going to get is likely to be very low. And in addition to that, there were a lot of uh, legal articles written back in the 1950s when this was last considered about whether or not the person who's just a little bit farther east from you, if the storm is traveling west to east, Uh, as to whether or not they could sue you for taking their water that would have gotten to them if you hadn't seeded the clouds (laughs) beforehand. Much more important is recycling. With recycling, we can add a tremendous amount of water available to our urban areas. And there is technology that is coming online now that not only can provide you with that pure drinking water that you want, but also can provide you with significant amounts of energy, as well as getting the nitrogen and the phosphate out of it that you also could sell for a profit. So there's a variety of new technologies that are going to, I think, be really crucial in helping us meet our water needs. Ashley Bourne?
7: Really what we want to try to do is be as self-reliant as we can in the regions where we live. And so there's a lot we can do from recycling, conservation, other things to be as reliant as we can so we're not dependent on, on other areas to be bringing water in from. Let's go
1: to our next question at Climate One. We're talking about the drought.
4: Welcome. When you want to design a dam, you have to have frequency analysis, you know. 10 years flood, 25 years 50 years, 100 years, why can't we just develop a frequency for drought? Then we can decide what to do about the region development.
1: 100-year floods are now coming every 10
5: years, Buzz Thompson. The problem is, uh, as Greg just mentioned, the frequency of droughts appears to be increasing. There is a new study that was just released at Stanford, and what that study looked at was what has been the weather conditions in California over the last 70 years, and to what degree have we seen the type of situation that has led to our current drought, which is a ridiculously resilient ridge of high pressure sitting off of the west coast of the United States, preventing those storms from coming into California. And what they found was that type of a problem has been much more common in the last 35 years than it was with the 35 years prior to that. And it doesn't appear as if the frequency of floods has gone down. So what appears to be happening is that we're going to the extremes. We're going to have more droughts and we're going to have at least as many floods. And what is disappearing is what we might at one point have considered
4: normal. Last question. Yes, sir. I was born and raised in Fresno, and one of the reasons I left Fresno was because of the chronically whiny farmers. And if you give farmers more water, they just plant more crops. So somebody has to break down that egocentric mentality.
3: But can I make an argument back?
4: Ashley Bourne?
1: Do you eat?
3: Mm -hmm. All of us are dependent on those farmers. If you eat, and I don't care what you eat, you're dependent on a farmer.
4: Almonds and pistachios and grapes are not requisite in the average diet.
3: The Mediterranean diet is the only diet that has been proven to be healthful. What's in that diet is fresh fruit, vegetables, nuts, olive oil. Things I, we grow here very well.
1: And I have almonds <laughs> in, my, in my drawer. I just want you all to know that. I have, right upstairs above this, uh, this stage.
2: You're listening to Climate One with Greg Dalton. Greg's been talking to Gabriel Ludwig from the Almond Board of California, Buzz Thompson from the Woods Institute for the Environment at Stanford University, Ashley Bourne from Sustainable Conservation, and Max Gomberg at the State Water Resources Control Board. We'd like to know what you're doing about water conservation. Find us on Facebook or join us on Twitter. Our handle is at One. Our next conversation continues to explore arid California. Water wars have always been epic here as city, farm, and nature battle for their fair share of this limited resource. But the stakes are rising as water levels sink, literally. Groundwater is being sucked at a record rate to compensate for low rainfall, melting snow caps, and overuse. How do we balance everyone's needs? Can we cut back our use as population continues to grow? And what are the rainmakers predicting as we move into a new climate future? Greg's next guests are three water wizards. Noah Diffenbaugh is a senior fellow at the Woods Institute for the Environment at Stanford. Peter Glick, one of the world's foremost authorities on fresh water, is co-founder and president emeritus of the Pacific Institute, a water think tank based in Oakland. And Karen Ross grew up as a 4-H kid on a farm in Nebraska. Now she's responsible for promoting and protecting California's $54 billion agricultural economy as California's Secretary of Food and Agriculture here's our conversation about drought in the land of plenty
1: Karen Ross how is the agricultural sector being affected is it is it hitting the farms and, and are we seeing impacts at the grocery store
0: it's fallowing acres that's what farmers do because of the water rights system the waters cut off and so you fallow acres if you don't have access to groundwater so far food prices have remained fairly stable But if we continue to have these kinds of situations and we grow less and less, then the things that we specialize in California could, in fact, see increased food prices at the grocery store.
1: Agriculture is 2% of the California state economy, 80% of water use. Karen Ross, you penned an op-ed last year saying that it's worth it. Do the math for us.
0: My constituents go crazy talking about 80% of the water. It is true that 80% of the developed water in California and on a global basis... And tell us um, what developed water movie. means. Developed water means that water that we capture, manage, put into a reservoir system, move to those places of need, as opposed to all of the water that's available from nature in good years that mean increased flows in our streams, that benefit our wildlife, and just our green landscapes... And that, it's a different statistic. And the 2%, I do take exception to because agriculture is creating economic activity far beyond that 2%. We're embedded in insurance and finance. We're embedded in marketing. We're embedded in entertainment because we're a big part of our tourism industry. 25% of the $100 billion that's spent by tourists in our state every year is going specifically to culinary tourism, restaurants, restaurants wine tasting, and all those other fun types of activities. Let's
1: get Noah Diffenbaugh. Does uh, ag get a disproportionate use of water compared to its contribution
8: to the economy? Well, I think food is more than 2% of what we eat. It's close to 100. Um, <laughs> I and like this and Don't guy. need to go to Stanford to get that
1: math. Yeah, okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah.
8: <laughs> and, and I think you know it's not controversial to say that California's agriculture is is. You know, critical for the U.S. agriculture and, and for the globe. So I think the real challenge that we're seeing in this drought is that we have a lot of really worthwhile demands on our water. And when we face shortfalls, we really see the stress across those demands. And I think it's in the context of a changing climate, where we know that these kinds of conditions are becoming more frequent and will continue to become more frequent, how do we manage those different priorities in a way that manages those, those climate risks and meets the needs of people and ecosystems?
1: So Peter Glick, do uh, environmentalists and others unfairly criticize agriculture for its perceived high water use?
4: During the drought, the agricultural sector has done remarkably well. Farm prices have been high, food prices have been high, revenue has been pretty good, but partly... That's because we're unsustainably overdrafting groundwater. We're we're seeing groundwater levels drop. We're seeing subsidence in the Central Valley and the southern San Joaquin. That can't continue. If the drought were to continue, we're going to see fundamental changes in agriculture. We may see some land come out of production permanently. We're already seeing changes in crop type. We're going to see more tension between cities and farms and ecosystems. Mm -hmm. We can't leave the ecosystems out here. There have been enormous ecosystem impacts of the drought. And that's part of the equation.
1: You mentioned subsidence. I want to roll a clip from KQED. This is Michelle Sneed, a geologist with the U.S. Geological Survey, interviewed on KQED about subsidence, which is the sinking of land in the Central Valley as a result of pumping out groundwater. Let's listen to this clip.
0: I've been studying land subsidence throughout the West for 20 years, and I've never measured rates like this before.
3: Over the past two decades, the ground in one area has sunk from Sneed's head to her feet. According to NASA, some parts of the Central Valley are now sinking more than two inches a month.
0: We saw that the area being affected by subsidence was enormous, stretching all the way from I-5 to 99. About 1,200 square miles were being affected by subsidence.
3: That's an area the size of Rhode Island.
1: That's Michelle Sneed, a geologist with the U.S. Geological Survey. Karen Ross, an area the size of Rhode Island, sinking as much as two inches a month from the pumping of groundwater.
0: We have historically in agriculture relied on groundwater for about 30% of our total needs, which is more sustainable. It's just that in drought time, that is our reservoir. That is supposed to be our buffer to carry us through disastrous drought conditions. And the last few years, 60% of our water is coming from that groundwater. That is not sustainable, and we cannot waste time in putting our basins back into balance and doing that in a very thoughtful kind of way to make sure we have that buffer for future generations.
1: So Peter Glick, sinking lands and pumping too much groundwater.
4: This isn't just a drought problem. Even during a good year, we overdraft groundwater. We use more groundwater than nature recharges, and that can't continue. But doesn't each individual farmer have an
1: incentive to suck out as much as they can? Because if I don't get it, Karen's farm will. And if Karen's farm doesn't, Peter's farm will. So. Well, at the moment.
4: That's right. At the moment, it's a free-for-all, but there is a little bit of optimism in the sense that we now have, for the first time, a Sustainable Groundwater Management Act designed to let the local basins develop plans to bring their basins into balance.
1: Noah some recent research came out of Stanford saying that there could be three times the amount of groundwater into the Central Valley. That headline might say to farmers, okay, let's open up the taps, keep pumping.
8: If we look deep, there's a lot of water there, exactly how fresh it is, exactly how much energy it would take to get it up to the surface, exactly how much energy it would take to make it more fresh if it's not sufficiently fresh. I think those are open questions.
1: Karen Ross, we're drilling deeper for oil. Why not drill deeper for water, especially if it gets more scarce?
0: It's just the cost of doing that, the energy of doing that. These are huge factors in all of this. And really reconciling the value that we put on water for the value that it brings us back, which is why we've seen the crop shifts that we've seen, is that we're generating more efficient economic use of every drop by matching it to higher value crops. But it comes down to the value of water for the value it brings to us. And we all have a role to play in using every drop as efficiently as we possibly can. So what are
1: you saying? Are you saying that there'll be less cotton, alfalfa, almonds, that sort of thing? There
0: is already a lot less cotton. When I moved to the state almost 30 years ago, we had over a million acres of cotton in the Central Valley. Last year, I don't think even 220,000 acres of cotton. That's just one example of crop shifts that are happening Farmers in the state respond very rapidly to markets, and we are shifting more and more into those kinds of produce crops, tree nut crops, processing tomato crops. We still have a lot of cows in the state, and that's what the alfalfa is used for, but we're really matching where the highest value is and for the value <laughs> add.
2: You're listening to a Climate One conversation about mega drought in California. Greg Dalton will be back with his guests in just a moment. Greg Dalton's back with Noah Diffenbaugh, a lead author for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC. Peter Glick, author of many books, including Bottled and Sold, the story behind our obsession with bottled water. And Karen Ross, California Secretary of Food and Agriculture. She's a former chief of staff for U.S. Secretary of Agriculture Tom Vilsack. Here's Greg.
1: Peter Glick, is the market working to shift those crops to where they ought to be, so the highest value away from cotton to other things?
4: My economist friends like to say, let the markets work. Let the free market set the price of water and then people will be efficient. I'm not an economist, but there's no such thing as a free market. Water is allocated not on a market system in California, with a few exceptions. It's given out by water rights, and those water rights are 100 years old or more. And that's part of the complication. But farmers are shifting. We're growing less cotton. We're growing more almonds
1: for a reason. Karen Ross, you mentioned cows. You know, there's about 600 gallons of water in a hamburger. Some people really question the water, embedded water in a hamburger and other beef. Other people say cows can be part of the solution, that if they graze properly, certain grasslands can sequester water and carbon. How do you see it?
0: We really have to think more comprehensively about the public good that comes from well-managed stewardship practices on our farmland, including with our cattle. And then at the end of the day, each one of us as consumers make very powerful decisions, both at the grocery store aisles and at the ballot box with the policies that we support and what we choose to buy. We still in this country value choice, and we want to be able to make our own choices, but we need to be informed consumers and understand the impact of our own decisions.
1: Noah Diffenbaugh, help us a little bit understand the drought. Is this drought amplified by the climate, by climate disruption?
8: We now have certainly a hill coming up to a mountain of papers asking that question. And the preponderance of evidence from those papers from a number of different independent groups is clearly that, yes, global warming is influencing what we're experiencing here in California. The primary influence is through temperature, you know, the more heat there is in the atmosphere, the more that draws water out of soils and out of plants. The faster that it melts snowpack, uh, the more that it pushes precipitation towards rain rather than snow, particularly at lower elevations, and we've seen all of those during this drought. My lab at Stanford, what we found is that it used to be in California that we pretty much got half wet years and half dry years. We got half warm years and half cool years, and now we're getting a warm year Pretty much year after year, 80% of the years in the last two decades have been warmer than the long-term average. And what that means when, when we have low precipitation and high temperature is we're much more likely to get drought, and that's uh, what we're likely to see going forward into the future.
1: So Karen Ross, how is the agricultural sector getting ready for a hotter and drier future?
0: The most immediate change has been what's happening on the farm as far as improving the efficiency of our water use and the adoption of precision irrigation technology because we have trees and orchard crops that lend themselves very nicely to drip irrigation, and subsurface drip irrigation completely transformed the processing tomato sector. It improves quality, it lowers other inputs, um, it reduces nitrogen runoff from fertilizer in addition to being the most efficient way of using water, trying to minimize evaporation off of those fields. So we have about 50%, close to 50% of the acreage that's using that kind of technology. There's several barriers to why we're not getting further down the road and one of the big ones is that 46 percent of our land is rented so you can't go to the bank and use your land as collateral to make those kinds of capital investments Mm -hmm. we have been offering incentive dollars to try to help especially a lot of the smaller mid-sized farmers that just need that incentive dollar to take the next step to implement drip technology we're doing that but our whole infrastructure in california needs to be Modernized.
4: Peter Glick, is ag doing enough? None of us are doing enough. There are probably people, well-meaning people in the audience, who still have top-loading washing machines or six-gallon-per-flush toilets in your homes or leaks that you don't even know about. There's not enough water for all of us to do what we want as badly as we're doing it now, as inefficiently as we're doing it. And it's true during a drought, but it's true during a normal year as well. Some cities, Palo Alto, has secrecy laws around water usage. Do
1: you think name and shame is a good tool for uh, putting, you know, Billy Bean's name in the paper that he uses lots of water?
4: You know, name and shame maybe helps in some circumstances. Maybe it doesn't. But in general, if we had better data on who was using water and what they were using it for, we would have a better tool for figuring out how to use it better or how to price it differently or how to offer incentives for improving efficiency. And yet it's astounding How bad we are at collecting water data. It's really astounding in every sector ag, urban, industrial use, all of those things. And so I like the idea of open source data on water. Karen Ross, would farmers agree with that?
0: Yes. I mean, if you really want to improve your management, you have to be able to measure and know what your benchmark is and have that to compare to. And it's the same with our household use. We've made strides to do a much better job of collecting the data, making it user-friendly, and that's one of the positives that have come out of the drought. There are
4: groups that are not enthusiastic about collecting and revealing the data on their water use. I would just point that out. You Noah know mm.
8: one. Just to give the uh, sort of obligatory promotion for the importance of research, we do have a project at Stanford in the uh, the data science initiative, and uh, Phil Levis, who runs the Secure Internet of Things, uh, so you know, the Internet of Things we hear about, uh, we're now trying to do this with water and water data and figure out a system for monitoring and keeping anonymous so that the information is secure, but that we know we don't know who it is necessarily, but everyone would know what theirs was. We are working on that now, and um, that's in the domestic space so that people have more visibility on what their own domestic use is.
1: I want to get to some of the top lessons or tips from the drought. We're, what, five years into the worst drought. What are some of the real lessons, Karen Ross, from this drought?
0: Well, just the remarkable progress we've made on showing what we can do with conservation and not have it impact our economy too dramatically, as well as our lifestyles. But it really underscored our disadvantaged communities. We have almost 2,000 wells that did go dry over this drought, and that's impacting some of our poorest communities who already had some water quality problems, so it's really raise the visibility of what we need to do as Californians to make sure that every Californian has access to safe, clean drinking water.
1: Peter Glick, lessons so far in this year five of this uh, most severe drought in 1,200 years? Yes.
4: Ecosystems are often underappreciated and suffer more during droughts than human uses. In agriculture, we move to groundwater, and that's been a buffer. But ecosystems have really been hammered. Our energy system is partly dependent on water. We get hydropower, and when we have a drought, we don't get as much. And when we don't get as much, we burn more natural gas, and that produces greenhouse gases, and that's a climate challenge. Another lesson is if the drought's bad enough, sometimes the politics open the door to cooperation and some new opportunities. And so none of us are hoping the drought continues much longer but it is an opportunity to do things a little differently, to have some of the conversations that maybe we don't have when people forget that there's a problem. So that maybe is a positive lesson.
1: Noah Diffenbaugh, takeaways from
4: the drought.
8: I think the biggest lesson is that California is in a new climate. We have a water rights system, as we've heard, that's more than a century old. We have water infrastructure and management system for that infrastructure that's you know, half a century old or more. And those were all designed and built in an old climate and we're in a new climate. It's already here. It's going to intensify as global warming continues, and if we want to have a water system that's prepared for the climate of the present and the climate of the future, then we need to acknowledge that we're in a new climate. We don't have the climate from a century or a half century ago.
1: Peter Glick, we haven't talked much about
4: recycling or reuse. Are we going to see more of that in California, and how are we going to pay for it? We've talked quite a bit already about conservation and efficiency, doing more with the water we already have. That's the demand side of the equation. But on the supply side, there really is no more new water. But there are new supply options, and water reuse and recycling is one of them. Better stormwater capture is another. And the truth is we spend a lot of money collecting wastewater, treating it to a very high standard, typically, and throwing it away. And there's enormous potential for reusing water for flushing toilets or landscapes or irrigation or all the way up to potentially potable reuse. I don't think that'll happen soon, but we're seeing more and more recycled water already More and more water districts are starting to do that, and that's inevitable. I want to
1: ask Peter you to share a story with us from your book, Bottled and Sold, about a a stadium,
4: sports stadium, that was built in Florida. It's an interesting story. So this is in part reflective of the way we think about or ought to be thinking about water. This was uh, about 10 years ago now. A big football stadium was built, I think it was Central Florida University, a big football university. Opening day very hot. It was September. They had 100,000 people in the stadium, approximately. It turned out they had built the stadium with zero water fountains, uh, which I think was a violation of the Florida Building Code. And it was a very hot day. They had 30,000 bottles of bottled water at the concession stand. They sold out. And by the end of the day, dozens of people had heat stroke and went to the hospital because there was not enough water for people. The university very quickly retrofitted that stadium with 40 or 50 water fountains. But it was reflective of the disappearance of public water and the shift toward private water,
1: which is a bigger problem than, than we think. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One.
3: Hi. I would be very interested in hearing how you expect California to to develop in a climate which I see getting worse and worse, and I see climate change rising and rising and rising and rising, and I'm concerned
1: that we'll have a thousand-year drought. Thank you. Noah Diffenbaugh.
8: The best evidence we have is that California has entered a regime in which we have warmer temperatures, and what that means is that when there's low precipitation, we're more likely to enter drought, and those droughts are likely to be more intense and to last longer, and that those periods are likely to continue to be punctuated by wet years all the evidence suggests that we are likely to continue to have a climate that is punctuated by wet conditions.
4: Peter, I would note there are different definitions of drought. There's meteorological drought, that is how much water nature delivers to us Mm -hmm. in our wet season. There's hydrologic drought, which is how much water is in the system. And then there's economic drought, which is how much water we humans want. And if there's not enough water to do all the things that we want, even if Meteorologically, there's no change, or hydrologically, there's no change. Then maybe we are in a drought anyway. There's some nuances there. Thank you. Let's go to our next question at Climate One.
6: Uh, my name is Pat Ruckert, and I work with the uh, LaRouche Political Action Committee. If we go back a thousand years, then we had mega droughts lasting 100 years, 50 years, 40 years, and mankind wasn't really
1: so pumping what- uh, CO2 into the atmosphere. So. What's the difference between then and now? No a difference by the difference between then and now. Yes, yeah, so a big
8: difference is temperature and we know from looking at those tree ring records that the high temperature has made this a very extreme drought even in the millennial context that you're talking about and it really is the the combination of the low precipitation with the high temperature that makes this event so rare and so severe. Also, those tree ring records show trees that were stressed but didn't die. What we're seeing during this drought, uh, we're seeing on the order of millions of trees dying during this, this drought. And when the trees are dying, that's, that's a giga drought.
4: But, but the other difference is 38 million people.
1: Yeah. Let's go to our next question in Climate One. Hi, my name is Larry Ladd. I live in Sacramento where it takes the equivalent of 60 inches of water to keep a lawn alive for three months during the summer. And in my neighborhood, about half the people have abandoned grass lawns about half have kept. And they're debating about whether to switch landscaping or not.
8: Noah Diffenbaugh. I, I think one of the lessons for me is, uh, you know, the, the, the tremendous water savings we've seen in Southern California with the lawn buyback program. Something like 50% of the domestic water use prior to the drought was going to domestic irrigation and something like $350 million invested in paying people to give that up. And it's been a huge water savings, uh, big success.
1: Cash for grass. Next question in Climate One.
0: Peter and Karen, could you tell us a little bit
7: about how biodynamic organic farming might help us during drought
0: situations? Karen Ross? Both of those systems have a very strong emphasis on soil health, sequestering carbon, and really building the organic matter in their soil, and it will provide some drought resilience. But
4: Peter Glick, organic
1: itself speaks to fertilizer use, et cetera, but not water use.
4: That's right. Organic doesn't automatically mean less water. Maybe the general message is that farm management practices have an enormous impact on water and soil quality and soil health and carbon emissions and carbon sequestration. So we have to manage the agricultural sector not just for food production but for sustainability broadly, trying to integrate all of those pieces together. Let's go to our next question. Hi, I'm Paul Chapman, a longtime school teacher and school principal. I'm now working to promote greener, more environmentally sustainable schools. So I'd like to ask a broader question, and that is how you think we can best teach our young people about climate change? When should we do this? How best can we do it in the schools? To what end? Karen Ross?
0: Teaching about Mm. water and water conservation and how valuable water is is a great nexus to climate change as well. I just came back from leading a delegation to Israel. In that country, everybody, regardless of age, knows how valuable every drop of water is. And they did a very massive education, and they continue that in schools from the youngest age possible.
4: Peter Glick? There's an organization called Community Resources for Science that helps elementary school teachers teach science. Um, And there are new science standards, national science standards, and climate is a piece of that. If we had started teaching climate science 20 years ago or 30 years ago, maybe some of our policymakers today would be a little better informed than they are.
1: (laughs) (laughs) There's also uh, the National Center for Science Education in Oakland and the Alliance Mm -hmm. for Climate Education in Oakland. Let's go to our next question in Climate One.
4: Peter Anderson. Um, I have two friends who are climate scientists who say we're locked into a four degree centigrade rise in temperature in the next few decades. Do you think we can
8: adapt to that? We're not locked in, but we're in the, we're in the period where, where the decisions that we make now will go a long way to determining whether we see four degrees of warming or whether we see something more like what's in the Paris Agreement. So now we're, we, we, ha- we have the agreement at the international level, and the question now is meeting that agreement.
4: Peter Glick? So Noah's right. We're not necessarily locked into four, but we are locked into something. There is inevitable, unavoidable climate change now, some of which will be hard to adapt to, depending on who you are and where you are. So your question's a valid one. It's a good one. There are going to be bad consequences of the climate changes we're not now already able to avoid. And understanding what those are and figuring out how to deal with them is going to be a costly challenge.
2: Greg Dalton has been discussing water wisdom with Noah Diffenbaugh, Associate Professor in the School of Earth Sciences at Stanford, Peter Glick, a recipient of the MacArthur Genius Award, and Karen Ross, California Secretary of Food and Agriculture. She previously led the California Association of Wine Grape Growers. To hear all our Climate One conversations, subscribe to our free podcast at our website, climateone.org, where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more. Please join us next time for another Climate One discussion about powering America's future. (laughs) Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California. Greg Dalton is our executive producer and host. Jane Ann Chen is the producer. Kelly Pennington directs her audience engagement. Carrie Halpern is director of content. The audio engineer is William Bloom. I'm Claire Schoen, the audio producer. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. This program is generously underwritten by the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation. (laughs) Climate One is presented in association with KQED Public Radio.